Welcome back to the Soak by Slush podcast. Today's episode is just exceptionally exciting. I'm joined in the studio by a true legend of European venture in Sonali the Ricker, who's a partner at Excel. Sonali's and Excel's track records in Europe are just unparalleled. Excel was one of the first big US VCs to expand into the continent, opening up shop in London in 2000. Since then, the team has invested in a whopping 46 European and Israeli unicorns, which is more than any other VC. Personally, Sonali joined Excel in 2008 and has since led its investments in the likes of Spotify, Avido, Hopin, Cree, Monzo, and Sender, backing most of those companies at Cedar Series A. Together with Sonali, we explore two overarching topics, building and spotting enduring companies very early on, as well as everything that working side by side with some of the most iconic tech leaders has taught Sonali about leadership. And with that, let's dive right in. Sonali, thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this. And obviously, over the years, we've had the pleasure of hosting you on the slush stage many a time, but I don't think we've ever focused specifically on you. It's always been you, the moderator. So finally, we get to dive deep into the brain that we've heard so much from. So thanks for joining. Absolutely. It's not an accident. I'm always the moderator. It's my chosen role, but let's do this. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, thank you for having me. You're, you're too humble. Uh, for the first module of this, I wanted to talk about everything that uh, your sort of two decades in venture have have thought you about building and spotting enduring companies and doing so at the very earliest stages. And I wanted to start with uh, with a very broad question, which is what have you found to be the most important sort of foundational step to building an enduring legendary company? Yeah, it's Mika, it's such a key question. And it's by the way, we take a lot of pride in not just having nice returns, but also being part of businesses that stand the test of time. And so we do think about what makes for an enduring company. You know, what I think we use a lot as a term is category leadership. Companies that's very from very early on figure out that our goal is to really nail the category. They act and think differently, Miko, than companies that don't say that. It's about how you think about product. It's how you think about what the next product will be in your suite, which gives a lot of value to your first product. It's the language you use when you even hire your team members, kind of the mission statement. It's how you think about the geographical scope of what you're going to do. And it's a subtle nuance, but it really magnifies over time. So if I I can jump on that with one follow-up question. Let's assume I was a, a pre-seed founder pitching for investment from you. How far ahead and with what specificity would I need to be able to describe my ambitions? Like, is it is what you want to see a, a 10-year financial model of exactly how I'm going to take over the world? Or is it rather that I need to have an endpoint in mind, which is sufficiently ambitious and some broad strokes on the path there? So so what, what's the time frame and what's the specificity? Yeah, so no specificity, right? Because it's impossible. We all know that whatever you write down, is, as they say, junk in, junk out. So it's just bad data. At the stage of pre-seed, there are no numbers. And anyone who tells you their numbers, you know that they're actually spending their very precious time because all you have as a founder is your time on the wrong thing. But it's much more thinking about, here's the customer, here's the pain. This is how we're going to do it differently, the why now. But then if you fast forward, we're going to do A, but then we're going to do B and we're going to do C. We're going to, we call it often like act one, act two, and act three. And act one is typically the wedge. You know, I'm going to have a hook. I'm going to get into the customer customer data. I'm going to sort of start to get them to use it. I'll have some frequency, I'll have some engagement, and then I'll do act two. And act two is a better product because it has the data of act one, for example. And then act two gives me a product suite. You know, I'll be an Atlassian in one way, or I'll be a Salesforce, Adobe. These are all multi-product companies that have been built over a long time, but they've done it in very different ways, either through acquisitions or through organic build, through a combination, et cetera. But there's always been act one, act two, act three. And we don't expect all the specificity, but just the, the view and the ambition and the 
the vision, there is something broader than just what that initial hook is. There's a platform company here. We think a lot about platform versus product companies. We're looking for founders who can join dots and you need to be able to articulate those dots. And of course, everything will change. We all know about pivots, but having the broader view of how the category is shifting and what your role in it might be is super important or at least for me in that initial decision. Extremely interesting. Um, Let's talk about the flip side of that. So, you know, just as you have seen uh, several a success story, you will inevitably have seen failures as well. So through having seen all of those companies, what do you consider to be the most common or the most likely root cause behind company failure? Oh, I've not seen any failure maker. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know, what I will say is it's to me, and I, and I just mentioned it, is your currency is time. That is more valuable than money, especially in the, uh, you know, in the market that we've been in, which is now changing, uh, where capital was available a lot more cheaply. But your time is really important. And what I find is just the focus isn't there. You have a shiny object where you're building your product and you're doing a good job in it. But then because things are going well, you kind of think maybe I should expand into that geography. Mm. You kind of think maybe I should think about that second product. You spend a lot of time thinking about what are the competitors doing versus what you're doing. And in order to do all of that, you tend to raise more capital than you necessarily need. Once you have more capital, you spend it and you tend to hire more people. And so the underlying issue around trying to do too much as opposed to focusing on the one or two things that move the needle for that phase of the company, because typically it's only one or two things that move the needle. You tend to fight on too many fronts. And and, and what I find is that it, it leads to a little bit of kind of bloat. And I've seen it go two ways where founders become the bottleneck because suddenly there's just so many things to do, et cetera, and they want to still be in the detail. Or they become kind of delegators where they're like, okay, let's just hire a bunch of people. And then the, the magic where they were close to the customer and close to the product, that gets diluted. And, and also a third mode where suddenly these founders too early on have to become managers. You don't invest in founders because they're managers. In fact, sometimes quite the opposite, right? Often the great ones learn to become great leaders over time, but it takes time and it has to happen at the right pace of evolution. And so this shiny object attraction, as I call it, I think has very meaningful impact on the organization. And then, you know, you end up with a lot of false negatives, right? It could have been the right geography to go to. It could have been the right thing to do, but not right now. Yeah, I I like that a lot. And I think that phenomenon is actually made worse by some of the well-intended startup advice that's out there. Like so often I see this startup advice that's basically saying like, if you're not thinking about ESG at seven people, you're ruined. Or if you don't have a head of PR when you're 12 people, you're you're ruined. And, and I actually want to ask you a, a question in that vein. So what do you think is a sort of thing that commonly gets proclaimed as important in the early days that actually isn't important that most funders should not focus on? Is there, is there a thing like that? You know, it's um, that's a really interesting question. I think that there's so much going on. There's so much data. There's so many ideas. And what I think is a pity is when some founders go and have too many conversations and then they try to assimilate the advice, but they assimilate it in the wrong way. And they're going left because, you know, person A, this is how they built this multi-billion dollar company, but person B built a multi-billion. This is not how you have to learn it by doing it. You have to be the best version of yourself. And you can only do that. I think if you have a small group of people, a couple of conversations where you feel like you can put it all together and again, really 
have clarity, right? Have insight, have takeaway. It doesn't have to be a board. Like at the very early stage, you know, the right thing is just to have the right support, the right set of people around you. But typically it's better if they're together because then they kind of feed off each other and then you get to a next level of discussion. And I think, you know, what's happened in the last few years, kind of some of the craziness and some of the speed is that founders have genuinely thought, actually, you know what? Investors are just money. And, and part of that is right. They should not spend time updating. They should not spend time reporting. There's a lot of things that they should not do to kind of make the investors feel like they know what's going on, but they should probably have the right conversations with the right people who actually have skin in the game. Makes sense. And, and one more question on that. How do you do that? Well, let's assume, use your example of, okay, this is a seed or a series A company, which has just established a formal board. How, how do the founders that do it the best do it? What is the cadence with which they reach out to you as a board member? What is the kind of advice they ask you for? Like, what are the structures in early stage founders should have in place to not spend all of their days updating the board, yet get that relevant feedback that they need? Well, A, keep it small. B, the good founders really come in there saying, this is working, highlights, lowlights. And then here, these are my three questions. Help me answer the question. And by the way, Miko, you, because you're on my board, you are good at figuring out the hiring stuff because that's where we spend a lot of time. Help me find what does good look like for you know my first product marketing person. Introduce me to somebody where this was important and they learned some mistakes. You have to come in with questions. If you're just coming in with an update, it's just kind of blended. The whole thing is blended and you're not, you don't have the sharp end of the stick in terms of what are the two or three things that I really need to make decisions on. And actually it's a nice way to crystallize what matters in that phase of the company. It can be a month, it can be two months. At the early, at the series A stage, I would say three months is too far. All right. But now let's move on in the, the agenda. We've discussed uh, some high level stuff around how you build sort of generational companies, but let's spend a few questions on your job, which is spotting those early, right? When there are very few sort of proof points or metrics to look at. So let's start with a, with a question, which is what do you kind of regularly find that founders who are pitching you in the very early stages, let's call it pre-seed, seed, series A, what do you regularly find that founders think you care about that you really yeah. don't care about? Yeah. Another really interesting question. I would say it's a phenomena where bad news comes out last. I say this all the time. It's just bad news should be first. It really should be the first thing. And for some reason, founders think that investors after they invest, especially, or even in the process of investing, will freak out with bad news. Whereas I think mm. we just don't, right? There's nothing, especially if you're an experienced venture capital, I've been doing this for a long time. There's like nothing I haven't seen, literally, sadly, you know, and maybe this is something else, but I can figure out how to how to digest it. And there's nothing more concerning when you, you hear about bad news, not from the source, or you hear it late and you think, oh God, what else do I not know? So I just want to make that point, which is just give the bad news to your investors because that's the way you build trust. That's the way you exercise the muscle of trust. And there's nothing more important than trust if you want to build a long-term relationship. The other one is, and it's a controversial thing to say, is the business model. I, I find that founders say, look, we don't have the answer to these questions. They're not apologetic about it, but at the same time, they don't know how that'll land when they say that, right? But you know, all investors understand, especially for a certain category of company, if you're a consumer company and you're creating a new category, it's really hard to know how to extract value. But you know, if you have enough frequency, if you have enough customer love, if you have enough engagement and you just have enough of a footprint, there are ways you can figure this out. So when I look at those sort of category and class of companies, it's okay to me that we don't have the answer, especially at the seed stage. It's good to brainstorm about it, but it's a way to see how founders think. But somehow I think founders still haven't fully accepted that it's okay to not have answers to these hard questions 
it's not that I don't care about business model. I just know that at some point there are 10 ways to do this. Maybe there are 20 and there are there are answers that come and become much clearer. So we brainstorming about it now doesn't really help. Okay, makes sense. And if we've covered what founders sometimes think is, is important to a VC in the early stages, let's talk about you specifically. So as a younger venture capitalist or a less experienced venture capitalist, I should say, what did you think was very important to spotting winning companies early? Like what would you always worry about before making an investment at the early stages? which these days you're kind of, that's not really important. First of all, we all make mistakes. It's so frustrating, right? You're always learning. It's so this, this job is so fascinating because yeah. you're always learning, but the, the reality is you're always learning, which means you can always make more mistakes. And so you look for more <laughs> mistakes. Um, but uh, more seriously, as a, a less experienced and a young investor, so you can say that, I think that's okay. Fair enough. You really do want to do all your work, right? Because you know that the first few investments sort of matter, right? In terms of just your mindset, your learning, et cetera. And, and, and they still do, of course. And so, especially back in the day, you could do a bit more DD because you had time. So I'd spend a whole bunch of time, like making sure I spoke to everybody in the category, right? So the incumbents, the ex-entrepreneurs who had either sold something or had gone bankrupt, like, you know, just execs who worked in and around the, the business. And so I would try to sort of talk to protagonists in the category. And what I found is that everyone has a point of view, but it is so colored. And so you get strong biases and not always the right biases from individuals, from institutions, from companies that have been in and around a category because categories are rewritten. It's mm. like gospel truth, right? And of course, you will say, of course, me, you know, Mikos would say to Sonali, why won't you know this? Like it's a, that's the why now question, but you still want to try to get some proxies by talking to individuals and, and, and companies who've sort of lived that journey or sold to customers. What's the sell cycle like? What are the issues? You know, what are the margin questions that you don't think about if it's a consumer business? And then you realize you build a very back looking profile of what success looks like and you might you really have biases in there and you better be very smart to sort of unpick the biases and you can make wrong decisions as a result of that so i mean you should have seen my dd when i when we invested in spotify (laughs) (laughs) there was you know youtube and there was amazon coming and then there was the labels and you know it's just a very special business so we managed to sort of just figure out but it's not easy to unpack the the noise very interesting. I would love to see that, Didi. Maybe we should put you on the slush stage with Daniel and, and go over that and what was actually a, a pertinent concern and what was not. But, but, but anyway, for the time being, uh, let's finish up on this topic with one more question, which is a very unfair question because I'm imposing the ultimate scarcity on you, which is a one minute time limit. And within a one minute time limit, I want you to say the sort of the pieces of advice you would give to a first time early stage founder. One minute. Go figure out what great looks like in terms of your exec team. Go get introduced to a great BP marketing. Do the same thing for your product function. Do the same thing for your finance function, which is often overlooked. Hire your talent person early so they can help you find those people. You just need to know what great looks like as you build your exec team. You can only do the best based on what you've seen. I think that was probably less than 30 seconds. So extremely efficient. Figure out what great looks like. Well, let's talk about the great in, in leader which is another topic you've you've spoken and you've written about, I think, uh, you know, partly because you have seen some of the the legendary European leaders in tech of the past decade. So so let's start with that, which is general to every sort of good leader um, that you have come across. So so let's assume a leader means CEO for for simplicity's sake. And I want to know what are non-negotiable characteristics of great CEOs? 
Yeah. So we're talking about leadership and not just founders, but let me take the liberty of sometimes mixing the two, right? Because the real magic is when the founders stay on as CEOs and take the company public and, and stay beyond, right? I mean, you know that as well as I do. Mm-hmm. We spent some time actually on the, on the whiteboard in this room, really trying to codify it because if you think about it, that's how we pick. Yes, we know markets and we're very prepared and, you know, we're, we're, we're diligent, but at the end of the day, like we really want to build a relationship with these great founders and founding teams. And, and so we really thought about how to codify it. And, you know, when we first started Minko, we were non-negotiable. It was like, we absolutely have insights. They're able to join the dots. They're able to see around the corner. So that's really having a view on a market. They have to be great at storytelling. They have an unfair advantage in, in terms of being a talent magnet, because back to the question, you know, it's great that if you know what great looks like, but if you can't actually attract them, no point. So you're always a great storyteller from an internal employee perspective, from an external hiring people perspective, from a fundraising perspective, from a market category leadership perspective and this by the way takes takes time to to learn you have to have a sense of urgency because everything is happening all the time but i realized that a lot of these were actions they were not attributes so if i may can i kind of go a bit deeper than that we really thought about what are the attributes of, of great founders slash leaders and, and and there are a few it's a handful one is the curiosity always learning and and the best entrepreneurs and the best leaders are like after board me like who do you think knows this can you introduce me and they don't want to be introduced to 10 great people and do like just great dinners etc they want to be introduced to the few people who can answer the few questions they have. And, and that's so important to be like life, be a student, right? Always learning and assimilating. And then the second one is the clarity. You have all this data, you're learning, everything is available now, which, you know, 10 years ago, it wasn't. So it's incredible to have the access to that information, but you really need to have some insight as to what matters to you, kind of the clarity of thought, the simplicity, if you will. Everything is complex, right? Every business, if you peel a little onion, it's not kind of easy. Can you take all that data? Do you have the clarity? of thought to distill the one or two or three things that matter to your business decision-making. That's my third. Can you make decisions with this back to my sense of urgency? Not every decision will be good. I think, but there's nothing worse than making no decision, taking too much time, asking for too much data. You'll just never make it. So I think ability to make decisions and hopefully like 60, 70% of those decisions are right, but, but not all of them. And then the last one I would put in is self-awareness. How do you learn if you're not self-aware? How, if you don't know what your best strength is, you know, I'm a superpower at vision or evangelizing, you know, but I'm not good at the operational leader. Or fun. Let me go find that CEO. I'm a superpower at you know product. I have this sense. I know when, when I can join the dots with what the customer's pain point is. And I think this is the approach. I, I know I'm good at this, but I'm not good at the this other bit. So I'll get someone else to do that. So I think those are the sort of handful of attributes that I think are relevant. All right. Curiosity, clarity, decision-making, and self-awareness. If that is that which is uh, kind of general to or a, is a prerequisite for being a, a good leader, then next I want to hear about when have you been most surprised by a kind of individual individual sort of trait, habit, or characteristic of a specific exceptional CEO, something that was surprising, but really made sense in the context of that individual and the business they were leading. Yeah, I, I give you two examples, right? And, and you know, Daniel very well, and I think he's very open about this, but he, I think he would say himself, was an introvert, right? So he sort of mm-hmm. learned a lot about the storytelling and the whole kind of external side of being a founder leader. And I, it It really is something you can learn. And in the beginning, I would have thought that you need to have this larger than life personality. And I think I've seen over time that that is absolutely not true. It's not just about, oh, you know, kind of here's the mountain, let's climb it together, like rah, rah. Especially these days, employees see way beyond that. It's all about actions. It's all about motivational actions. And and, and I think that's that's been a learning for me. I think that's one. I think another one, you know, is probably Johannes Cree. He sort of has had to 
climb many mountains to figure out how do you build a healthcare business in a regulated market and in multiple regulated markets. And um, and sometimes you have to be just single-mindedly optimistic to do that. And of course, we're all optimistic. You're optimistic. I'm an optimistic as a as an investor. We all have to be to be in this business. You all have to have some version of rose tinted glasses. But you know, you have to be pretty optimistic to think you can think you can change how kind of healthcare delivery and regulation works. So sometimes you think is that too optimistic, but you realize that's what you need, right? So it's it's really horses for courses. Very interesting. Then you've spoken and and written about sort of extreme transparency as a as a leadership virtue and as a path to trust within a company. So I want to hear like how far should uh, sort of founders and CEOs go in that transparency? Like when let's say when have you been most surprised by a piece of information that a certain CEO decided to disclose openly to to their team? It's a fine balance, right? Because yes, I really advocate for maybe not full transparency, but when you have all of the information you need, can you be empowered to make good decisions? And again, back to, you know, a good company is a series of good decisions, not just at the top, but but everybody's more or less making good decisions. But again, mm-hmm. with half the information, you can't make good decisions, right? So there, there is just a fundamental need for access to, to information. And you only do that if you're transparent and you kind of know where uh, where things are at. Um, but, you know, funny example, I remember when we were chasing Monzo and um, trying to get a deal done and trying to make sure that it wasn't public information. And I don't even think we had signed a term sheet. And Tom, who was the uh, CEO at the time, he had these weekly all-hands meetings and everyone would come into the all-hands. He would uh, he would say a few things and he would put up a few slides sometimes and just talk. You know, he, was, he is incredibly naturally talented. And we happened to be there. We were having a meeting. So we said, okay, why not? We'll just step in. And he got up and he announced our investment to three hundred plus people. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. Like n- n- we A haven't signed, B, I thought we'd bring it very hush hush and C, like I have never seen this happen before. And it never leaked. It never leaked. Now I think at that point they were even publishing their board minutes, which is fine when you're a young company, but at some point when you're highly regulated, you know, bank, you just have to stop doing that. So <laughs> there is a there's like a sliding scale. But I remember that sort of super shocked me because even from a founder perspective, I would have thought he wanted would have wanted it in the back. But he trusted us to deliver. He trusted his team not to leak it. And he trusted himself to sort of make sure that, you know, everything else would work out in terms of whatever was left in terms of legals, et cetera. So it was a great learning experience that, you know, you can have a culture where everybody's rooting for only one thing, which is you and your success. And they'll do what is the right thing, which is at that point, keeping it quiet. But it was a bit of a shock, I have to say. That is uh, that is definitely fascinating. All right. And then I want to ask you a question about, uh, about sort of culture and where you, where the boundary is between a a sort of a necessarily high performance culture and a culture that verges on sort of toxic brutality. And I think I'm asking this question in the context of, well, some of the uh, sort of Netflix filmatized stories of, of toxic cultures that we've uh, been been able to enjoy recently, as well as in the, the context of some European stories where, you know, some of the companies whose, whose sort of products we might be uh, consumers of and that we've looked up to have at times uh, received press that perhaps suggest they've gone a step too far. So the question is like, wh- where is the line between a healthy high performance culture and, and one that is toxically sort of brutal? Yeah, you know, I, I I don't know who mentioned this, but I just love the kind of the, the metaphor is that you really can't build long term value if you have no values. If your lens and your filter is, are you around for 10, 20 years? Will you be a public company? I really think that that holds true. And the reason is because these cultures that you describe are very founder driven. And I have seen, it's not always true, but I have seen this phenomena of founders when they've had 
the success, it really becomes all about them. They are the central point of decision-making. The persona is so wrapped up in the company. It's sort of I, I, we, we, but I is a central part of the we. And as a result, the whole machinery around the team is I will do what, you know, Miko wants to do because he's the founder and mm. I know that please him. So instead of doing the right thing, you tend to pander to the founder and the founder's ego because you know that's what could get you ahead and suddenly you become very political. And all of that works if things are going well. And all of that works if like, you know, you hit the right market at the right time, you have a lot of money and, you know, you've got really good product market fit and we've seen it work. And that's where the, the valuations really have been there, many of these companies. But the minute you hit a bump, and I can tell you one thing, there's not a single great company that hasn't hit multiple bumps. It unravels very fast. And what I think you have is a culture of journeyman, where these people, where it's momentum-driven culture, it's formal culture, it's sort of a culture of, okay, I can, it's fast, it's fun, it's greed, it's fear, it's a mixture of greed. These are not fundamental ways that you can last long-term. I think it's like adrenaline. If you're stressed, you can keep going, you can keep going. But at some point, there's no balance between your body, right? And sort of kind of all burns out. So I don't know. I, I, I clearly I've been proven wrong and it's fine. You know, mm. the many roads to greatness, but, but I, I, I don't think you build an enduring company. That is fascinating reflection on what's clearly a, a hard topic. And there's a, uh, an example to the contrary for whatever argument you make. Okay. Lastly on leadership, I want to ask one question, which was not on the agenda, which is, let's say I'm the founder CEO of again, a, a seed or a, a series A company. So maybe my, my, my company employs 30 people at this point. And let's say everything goes fantastically. And in, you know, seven years, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be leading a company that has 3000 people, which is obviously the, the, the magnitude of success that some of your portfolio companies have enjoyed. What are the surprising ways in which I, as a leader, I'm going to have to change and scale with my company? What am I inevitably going to do, intuitively do wrong that I need to consciously sort of teach myself out of as my company scales orders of magnitude? Yeah. Okay. That is uh, thoughtful. Look, our average partnership with the company is 10 years. So, you know, you, you do go through these phases. So I have found that companies, and I don't have the exact numbers, but there is this sort of at a hundred people, you can pan pick everyone, you know, everybody's name. And then there's this sort of between 150 and kind of 300 people where it's not easy to keep the quality of the hiring the same, but people more or less do it because, you know, you've hired A people, A people have hired A people. What I have seen, Miko, is kind of at the three, 400 stage to the thousand stage, you need to go slow to go fast. And 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 I've seen people, a lot of founders blitzkrieg their way through that phase too, especially again, their product market fit, there were a lot of funding, there's competitors, there's PR. And so that is a trip up time. When you go from like the few hundred to you hit that thousand mark and suddenly you don't know who's doing what. You're, you're really fighting complexity. You're going much slower. You become your incumbent. You become the guy you were trying to compete with. So I think there's just, you need to really digest and figure out what do you do, what do you not do, what you're really good at, et cetera, and make sure that the organization works and you haven't sort of had bloat. I've seen people go so fast that last four, 500, you know, they double and before they look up, they can never have an offsite. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think as a leader, it's really about how the exec team functions and how you can evolve that team. A lot of founders have great one-to-one -one relationships, but they actually haven't invested in making the executive team function well and make really good decisions. They all update each other. They meet once a week, but it's not an instrument of decision-making. And when that is not done well, I don't think you can scale. From then you have to become an enabler of other people. Before you've been doing a lot of doing, you've been doing a lot of hiring, you're still setting strategy, et cetera. But there's a point at which you just become an enabler of other people and you need to be able to really 
get the best out of them. And then the best out of the group, the, the magic is when you get everybody around a round table, you go way further than you ever could through these one-on-one -on -one conversations. And that's when you have to become a student of being a great CEO versus some of the founder skills. Very interesting. Right. We have a, a couple of minutes left. So let's finish up on a few snappy questions. The first one of which is, what is a resource, whether a book, article, or otherwise, that you kind of keep coming back to year after year because it, 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 it has has such a fundamental lesson to the way you invest or, or the way companies are built. I don't know if I come back to it all the time, but something that really moved me is, uh, which I'm sure most people have read, so maybe not be new, but Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, mm. sort of in one system too, because I'm fascinated with how I make decisions, right? Everything in life is based on the decisions we make, either personally or professionally, and no more so than on the founder side. And so thinking about the biases and the cognitive biases and how they influence how we make decisions, so important. So just rereading certain paragraphs, realize, oh God, I, I, I knew that was wrong. And I keep doing that because we all, you know, are entrenched in our behavior. So I'm, I'm just fascinated by kind of decision making, if you will. Absolutely. Next, what do you not know that you really wish you knew? Oh, I really wish we had really time to get to know the founders we back the way we used to. Like what, what fire is in the belly? Like what really motivates you? And you know, you can ask these questions, you get the answers and you hope you're right, et cetera. But really understanding like how resilient are you, right? Like this is not going to work out. What, you know, what, what, what will the reaction be? I think just the time to really spend time with founders and just getting to know people a little bit more because these are 10, 15 year relationships and they matter because we're all references for each other, et cetera. And, and I feel like it's all being done a bit faster than it should be. Call me old-fashioned. Right. Uh, moving on, if I called up a given founder CEO in your portfolio, what's one adjective uh, you wish that they used to describe you? Um, insightful. Why? Because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a viewpoint that is informed and relevant to them that helps them shape their thinking. So, you know, I could say supportive, but insightful is kind of what I aspire to. I think supportive is like what we absolutely know, you know, and it's kind of ingrained in every bone of our body that being supportive, it's such a lonely journey, right? So being supportive is absolutely critical through it all. So I feel like that'll come anyway, but insightful is, is one I, you know, I hope I get. Okay. And last question, what is an important truth uh, about company building that most people would disagree with you on? The less is more, I would say, just no matter what, when there's just too much noise, too much PR, too much money, like it doesn't always really go well. So I would say less is more. I mean, some, we all know some of the best companies have been built in difficult times. Maybe that's the phase which we're entering. But I think the scarcity is good. Scarcity is good in general, right? Because it really makes you be creative. And I think we all know that. And maybe people would agree. But I think we've all got used to kind of abundance of everything. Well, Sonali, I, I hope this kickstarts uh, an active career in uh, in guesting podcasts for you <laughs> because uh, this was fantastic and I learned so much. Uh, thank you for being on. Well, thank you, Nico. Great questions. Thanks for taking the time. Good. This was fun. Okay. Chat soon. Take All care. right. Bye, Sonali. Okay, bye.